0: I'm David woods Director of Marketing and Communications at Amber and BGA, and you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. Over the past 18 months, the world has moved into an unforeseen phase of remote, hybrid, and flexible working. This trend is topical to say the least, and it's popular with employees, but remote working, virtual presenteeism, work-life balance, and screen fatigue are complex to manage and administrate. And as we move forward into a new normal, it's difficult to envisage the remote or hybrid workplace for some, Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Dyer, founder of PeopleG2, which is an organization which manages 30 fully remote staff and over 3,000 remote contractors. Chris made the decision for his organization to go fully remote all the way back in 2009. And this year, he's the co-author of a book called Remote Work, Redesign Processes, Practices, and Strategies to Engage a Remote Workforce. So I'm keen to pick Chris's brain and his expertise in enabling organizations to work fully remotely as well as delve into some of the key themes from his new book, which looks set to be the playbook for remote working moving forward. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time today to, to speak to me for the podcast. I thought before we start, it might be useful if you perhaps tell us a little bit about yourself and your career to date, really.
1: Yeah, so, you know, there's a, probably a, a very long version, but the short version is, is, you know, I started a company back in 2001 and I really ran the organization kind of how I thought management should be, right? I, Which was some combination of what my parents did and what my coaches, sports coaches did and things like that. In 2009, I realized it was probably a better way to do that. And since then, I've really focused my time around being an employee-centric CEO, which has significantly changed our trajectory and is really the reason why we have done so well, why my organizations have done really well, while well, we've been best places to work, um, and why anyone has cared to ask me to write a book or to come and speak at their conferences. And because we've learned so many lessons about sort of focusing on employees first, as opposed to being a sales-focused organization or a uh, customer service-focused organization, we are an employee-first organization, which I think it's sort of the the interesting part of the story that has been the epicenter of everything else
0: that has come from that. Sure. I mean I think that at the moment it's very much in the zeitgeist around remote working, hybrid working, flexible working and that's that's certainly something that everybody's talking about a lot at the moment. But back in 2009 as you mentioned, you know your organization people G2 took the decision to go fully remote and I think it's fair to say that that was maybe quite a bit ahead of the curve and it would have been a, a relatively controversial decision back then. I'd just be interested to find out why you wanted to, why you wanted to take that move to go fully remote, and and how that was really received by your staff and also by your customers.
1: So I wish I could tell you that um, this was some, you know, great uh, that I could see in the future, right? That I I knew what was going to happen, and I made this magical decision. The truth is, <laughs> you much more practical. Which is, it was the recession, um, 2009. We had sure. customers going out of business. We had people not paying their bills, and we had to survive. And I had I, what I determined was two choices: I could start laying people off, um, but I believed that we were going to come out of this. That there was there was light at the end of the tunnel. And I was really concerned that if I laid these people off, I may never get them back. And they were the the heart and soul of our organization. And and really that was a part of that beginnings of that mindset of me shifting to an employee centric, uh, business. But so I said, or I can send everybody home and we can work from home for a while. And that will save us a lot of money. we were very fortunate that our lease just happened to be coming up and we didn't, you know, we could choose not to renew it. Um, and so there was just enough of the new technologies out there. Things were working just right that uh, we, we kind of tested it and it, And it worked. So we went remote to save money. We went remote remote to save the company. And we also went remote secretly, meaning we did not tell our clients. In fact, we had an office. uh, We still have our mail go there. We have a a place and we had one person there just in case somebody showed up, just in case somebody asked, right? Because we were afraid of the perception. We were afraid that people would be like, whoa, what is this company that doesn't have a place? Um, there even was some legal requirements on us as given our business and background checks that we have this standing locked file cabinet that somebody was watching. And there was some old sort of things we had to deal with. And Those things have gone away, but um, it, really, it really wasn't as romantic as I think maybe it sounds now. <laughs> um, but as far as what my employees thought, I, I've told the story many times. Within two weeks of being remote, every employee had called me on their own every employee, which is not usual for me to talk to everyone in the organization, but everyone had gone out of the way to reach out to me and say, this is the best thing we've ever done. This is awesome. I love working from home. Can, you know, can we keep this up forever? Right? Because originally we talked about maybe just doing this during the recession and then maybe Mm -hmm. finding a place to and coming back together again. And it was very clear that we got more work done that we were happier, that we could enjoy our dog and, and eating food at home and not enjoy traffic <laughs> and, you know, people burning popcorn in the, uh, in the lunchroom and like, you know, just all the, the junk about, you know, being in an office together. So it, it just kind of turned out to be one of those lucky decisions, I think, that was really based on, on need more than it was on, you know, being a, a futurist
0: or anything. Sure, 100%. And I think that a lot of employers now would would be moving to that school of thought that, you know, they'd never considered having a remote workplace. They, for obvious reasons, were forced to, to have a remote workplace and it's working for them and they're, they're sort of seeing the success of that. But I think it's also fair to say that in terms of the remote working curve, you're perhaps 12 years ahead of the majority of employers that are adopting remote or hybrid practices at the moment. So I've read a lot around, you know, there, there is a, from, from some employees, there is a sort of uh, zoom fatigue. People are very keen to get back to work and they want to to be in the office. Sometimes they're struggling to have that work-life balance when they're at home. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult move from the dining room table where they might've been working during the day to the sofa for the evening What advice would you have for people that are, you know, going to be working from home for the foreseeable future if their employers have sort of said, you know, this is going to be something we'd like to explore and investigate? What what would you advise them to to get the most out of their working day and also to have that that all important work life balance in in the evening and weekends?
1: So I think there's there's two parts to what you said. There's the easy stuff, which is. You, as, as an employee in a company that's working remote, you have a responsibility and you have the complete control, right. To determine how and where and when you work, mm-hmm. um, uh, maybe, the, when is a little bit, uh, dictated, but you know, you, the, the, where, uh, is really, really your choice. So if you are sitting at the kitchen table or you are sitting at the couch, I would tell you, you're doing it wrong. Um, you need to be really serious about where you work. I, we. When new employees come on to my organizations, we spend a lot of time talking about do you have a dedicated space? Do you have a place where that is only for, for you to work in? It's not where your kids work and you're not co-sharing a place with your your spouse, or you know, do you have a dedicated space that is quiet, that is, you know, yours? And there's some really important reasons for that. And I think you kind of got into that maybe unintentionally, but it's hard to turn off. Right. It's hard to like say, I'm going to stop working if I'm sort of working everywhere inside my house. Mm -hmm. But if you have a dedicated space and you say, I'm done for today, and you close your laptop and you walk out of that space, that is a an imaginary signpost that is this indicator to your brain. Uh, James Clear in his book Atomic Habit talks about these physical things that you need to do, right? Instead of giving a goal that I'm gonna go running, the goal is to put on your shoes, your running shoes in the morning. Right. What's the physical act you can do to trigger your brain to do the thing you want? Well, walking out, closing your laptop and walking out of your physical workspace is a great way to create that barrier, right? Because you have to intentionally walk back into your office to start working again. And, and so that's really, really important in that psychology part of it. Now, in the in, in the larger scale, there are things that organizations need to do, Um to help employees do a better job. One of those things is they have to start finding new solutions and recreating, I guess, best practices around those things they're struggling with. So you talked about Zoom fatigue. If we're having Zoom fatigue, then how do we, deal with that. What is it we need to do to eliminate Zoom fatigue? Is it to to make meetings more intentional? Is it to shorten meetings? Is it give people more breaks? Um, I have been noticing when organizations ask me to come in and consult, one of the first things I do is ask them how many one-on-one meetings they're having and usually they're having like five people or having five, having a one-on-one meeting with the same other five people, right? That's like, <laughs> what's the math, 25? I mean, just have one freaking meeting with all five of you together, <laughs> right? Like, why are you having 25 meetings in a month for now? And I mean, that's just insane. But that was old school, right? That was how we used to do it. We could, you know, casually bump into people and meet them and we thought, well, let's just, let's formalize this. We'll have a standing call um, Monday at 8 a.m. every week, you know? And that was kill, that's killing them. Uh, imagine, and there's probably a couple of good examples, but imagine you were riding a horse your whole life and then suddenly the car came around, right? And you got into this car and you said, well, somebody might say, geez, my, my back hurts sitting in that car, right? It's quite bumpy, you know? And, and you could hear, all, if, if you focus on all of the negatives, right? Um, the positive is the car got you from point A to point B a hundred times faster Right. Than a horse. You don't have to feed a horse. A horse isn't going to like, you know, the, the car didn't need water. I mean, there's all these like better things. So do we say we should only ride, go back and ride horses? Right. Because our back hurts when we were in this first version of a car. Was that the Model T or the Model A, whatever it was? And or do we say maybe we need to invent shocks? Maybe we need to get better cushions. Maybe there's a way to deal with that new variable than it is to go backwards into what we used to do, what we used to know. Um, the, the other clear example is like, I imagine when electricity happened, right? And people got electricity in their homes for the first time and they used to be candlelight. Did they say, geez, my eyes hurt from being, the lights being on all the time. I <laughs> imagine there was a huge adjustment period, right? From going from candlelight to electricity. But did we go back to candlelight? No, we figured out how to adjust and what to do and how to, how to deal with this new reality. And I think that's really, where we're at with remote work but to figure out what we don't like and 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 iterate and 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 innovate ways to improve whatever it is that's not working and realize that this is the car this is electricity this is the new way to go for most people
0: it's really fortuitous that we're talking right now because you know as i mentioned this is an issue for many employers across the world and it's something they're thinking about for the medium to long term And fortuitously enough, you've just written a book called Remote Work, Redesign Processes, Practices and Strategies to Engage a Remote Workforce with your co-author, Kim Shepard. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about the book, really. Um, I'd be interested to find out if it was in the works before the COVID-19 pandemic and then I suppose what some of the main themes of the book are.
1: Yeah. So we actually did start it before COVID was even (laughs) an idea. Maybe somebody somewhere knew it was coming, but we didn't. And so we started it really, you know, prior to COVID, I spent a lot of time convincing people to let me talk about remote work, letting me, you know, speak about it or, or have a panel discussion. And most of my keynotes were around culture and engagement. And so people would basically appease me and say, okay, fine. On the last day at the last hour in Salon Z, you can go down there and talk about remote work, you know, after you do this other bigger keynote for us. And, and that's really what the remote work book was kind of felt like, right? We were begging and pleading the publisher to let us do it on this topic. And then the book was sort of begging and pleading people to give this a try and why it was going to be important and what it had done for me and my co-author. And then of course, COVID hit, and we had to totally rewrite the book and it was no longer about convincing anybody. It was okay. You've all done it. You know, you know, if this works or not for you, you know, um, something about it. And so here's let, let us, let us try to help you do it the right way. So we did kind of have to pivot a little bit, which, which was fine. Um, I would not have chosen COVID for anybody, but if we did had to have it, that was a nice uh, you know, little addition yeah. that at least people could now understand what we understood uh, at, at some level. Now, the book is uh, a culmination of a lot of, I think, really wonderful stories around uh, what Kim and I did. Kim actually did remote work before I did, uh, and she had people all around the world. Um, this is, she had it long before Skype worked very well. I mean, she was doing this by, you know, telephone, right? She was doing this with people um, in different time zones, not on video. I mean, this was purely, you know, teleconferencing was probably the best that she could do. And we we figured out a lot of different things along the way. And when I went remote, I spent a lot of time with her figuring out how she did things. And this is an interesting sort of story in the book is that I took what she did And I eliminated the stuff that wouldn't work for us. And I iterated on the things that would work for us, right? And I gave, and I told my organization about things they did. And then they innovated new ways for us to work that are very different than how she worked because we weren't the same business. But we were able to use some of that inspiration to come up with those new solutions. Um, One of the things that I think is really important out of the book is the different types of meetings. So one of the largest failures of an organization is to go and meet with people in a one singular way and they probably have two ways they meet they have a team meeting and then they have a one-on-one meeting Mm -hmm. and then, right i think one-on-one meetings should be eliminated almost completely there are a few exceptions but and then their team meetings are like well we're going to meet for one hour Right. It's very like standard or they yeah. say they just call the meeting and it goes on for hours and hours yeah. with no end and no <laughs> one knows what's going to happen. And that's wrong, too. So we have invented a whole slew of meeting types and they have different. They have a funny name. Each one has a funny name and they come with a particular set of rules. So everybody knows how long you're going to be there, whether or not you have to be there. Um, what will be expected of you in that type of meeting? So what, how will you be contributing or participating in that meeting? And it gives everyone that flexibility to move across the organization in lots of different ways. Instead of, well, if I call a meeting, I may be stuck with every, these people for four hours because my boss, John, likes to talk forever right? And and so then people won't call meetings and things like that. So we have cockroach meetings and ostrich meetings and tiger team meetings and tsunami planning meetings, and they are 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. I mean, they're all these different lengths of time and they have different rules. And I would say that how we meet is fundamentally one of the most important parts of not only our culture, but our remote work strategy. And that's often what I have to spend the most time helping people do is recreate meetings because it's so vital to the organization.
0: I mean, I think that's fascinating. There's loads of stuff that I want to pick up on here. I think the, f- the first thing I want to pick up on is what you said at the start of your answer, when you were sort of talking about um, conferences and speaking now, I've got a lot of experience in writing about HR over the years, and we've really focused in on issues like engagement, culture, soft skills, that sort of jazz, things that are emerging um, thought within that sort of arena. You're, You're absolutely right. From my experience, remote or flexible working was something that was a nice to have, and it was never something that was considered a strategic fundamental of organizations. And I do think it's fair to say that I think over the past 18 months, a lot of people listening to this podcast would would think to themselves, I wish I had read Chris's book before 2020. But I think equally, on the other hand, a lot of organisations didn't ever believe that they would be able to function properly when working remotely. They didn't want to. That wasn't something in their agenda. It's not something they wanted to think about or do. Um, have you seen over the past 18 months organisations that, you know, that were forced to work remotely that have actually been able to make a real success of it, that have turned this into a really positive case in point?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of organizations out there that have, um, and you can see it in the news. It's one of the big ones saying, Hey, we're going to keep remote work, right? This is going to stay for a long time. If anybody needs to get any good examples, go in and type in, you know, remote work and look up the latest news articles. There's countless organizations saying we're going to keep it. And it's going to stay. And those are the ones you can tell that are getting success out of it and are doing it right, and/or also their top employees are saying they they want to keep it as well. Right? There's a there's a sort of a two pronged uh, spear coming in there. Mm-hmm. But it, I, I found it so fascinating that the news for so long, early in the pandemic, probably in the first six months, was it was like shocking productivity and performance are up with remote work. And it was like, yeah, no kidding. We've been seeing that forever. And then they, it took them a long time to understand why. And at first they thought it was just people being bored. Was it just people, you know, uh, trying to be really to work really hard not to lose their job. And it was like, no, they're not sitting in traffic for two hours each way. Right. And they're using that time to get more work done um they're not being interrupted constantly in the cubicle farm right their attention span can be de- dedicated sometimes for hours at a time can you imagine the last time if you worked in a traditional office where you might get two or three hours of dedicated time that no one interrupted you no phones no one walking by the cubicle saying hi no singing happy birthday to somebody like none of that stuff right? three hours of just head down, kicking butt, getting your work done, right? That's the kind of stuff you get out of remote work and, and you can curate that. And, and that, that that has huge implications for organizations, huge, but they didn't ever see it that way, right? It was, well, all need to be together and we're going to collaborate and that's going to make everything better. And like every remote organization I've ever worked with, every remote team I've ever worked with, the light bulb goes on and goes, wow, there was so much minutia. There was so much just junk happening, right. That we called work, we called productivity and it was nothing. It didn't matter. And it was just this, I don't know, thing we did uh, that you realize you don't need to do anymore. Hmm. I've equated it a couple of times, the difference between being a home chef and being a professional chef, right. You're a home chef, you're very disorganized, you're having a good time. There's a glass of wine there while you're cooking, right? You might have music on, you know, and it's fine. You go work in a professional environment, right? And it is like, you have one job, head down, you're getting dishes, you're so organized. They use this term called mise en place. I mean, everything has its place. It's so organized, right? That's sort of like the difference in remote work, right? You're just super organized, super focused, and you get a lot more done. And I think at a higher quality too.
0: I mean, I think that's fascinating. And I think the other thing I'd like to pick up with you is meetings. Now, I think that I was really interested in what you said around different types of meetings and how we can better curate these. And I think this is an issue for people that work remotely and people that that travel to an office, that there is a strange meetings culture that we've become very accustomed to, that we are used to going into meetings and thinking that we could be there for X amount of hours, not having an agenda, not knowing exactly what's going to happen in saying that, um, collaboration has been a buzzword of 2020, 2021. And especially with people working remotely, there has been, I know from my own experience, a lot of friends that that are working remotely they've said you know we are being encouraged to have more meetings to use zoom a lot more to to sort of have that sense of you know inclusivity and collaboration and that's how most organizations are facilitating this do you think if we're going to have to purposely work fully remote moving forward and, and that's a decision that employers make there needs to be changes in how we collaborate and how we have our meetings you know, virtually using, you know, online technology to to enable that, to, to make them more focused, to make them more appropriate rather than, okay, we're all working remotely. So therefore we need to be constantly on, you know, various virtual channels to talk to each other.
1: Yeah. So the good news is if anyone out there is concerned about, you know, meeting fatigue or Zoom fatigue, there is a better way to do it, a, a way in which you don't have to have that. And so I'll tell you, we, we um, surveyed our people on this topic about five or six times since the pandemic started up until last week and asked them, do you have meeting and or Zoom fatigue on a scale of one to 10, one being the least and 10 being the worst. And our average score was 1.1. And, and so it, that, is a, that, that is my, that's the beginning of my proof point here. And I can tell you what we're doing right? So we, we average about 36 cockroach meetings inside the organization a day. And so a cockroach meeting is five to seven people. It's optional for anyone who is invited to attend. The person calling the meeting can invite anybody they want. There is no hierarchy. It is a single agenda item. We can only talk about the one thing that the meeting was about. The meeting must start on time and it may never ever go late. In fact, the goal is to always end early. So these 15 minute meetings tend to be about eight minutes on average in length. And so you say, well, how can you get anything done in eight minutes? Well, Essentially, what we're doing is saying, hey, I have this problem, I have this small problem, like a cockroach in your bathroom. It's a small problem. And you may not want to be the one who cleans it up, right? You may need somebody else to go in there and help you. And that's kind of what this meeting is about. I have this one problem. I'm going to get the five to seven people together that know about this, that have experience with this, that might be able to point me in the right direction, that might need to learn from this, right? Who are the people that I should call and they get on the call. Okay. Uh, David, I'm having a problem logging onto this, you know, this zoom call and I haven't gotten your questions or whatever these things are. Here's my problem. Here's my thing. Right. And I get a team together. I'm like, okay, here's what you need to do. Contact this person. They'll get you this and boom, you're off the phone. Right. And that sounds like a lot of to do for a small thing, but what I find happens is that people come together They quickly help that person get unstuck. They quickly collaborate and feel good about a good interaction. They don't chit chat. They're not talking about their kids. No one's doing the whole, you know, to do that we might on a longer meeting. Mm -hmm. And um, we have just stopped somebody trying to figure it out on their own and i don't know if you've ever had this but i've had people come to me and go you know i've been trying to figure this thing out i spent a few hours online looking and i'm looking at my computer i'm like and they've ended up spending 4 or 5 hours trying to do something that i know how to do in 2 seconds right i already know how to how to do that formula in excel i already know how to you know fix that issue with your printer i already know this how to do this thing it's happened to me right and they have spent hours of company time, trying to figure it out on their own. And so we undo that by making our meetings more effective um, and, and moving it through the organization in a much, much different way. So you don't have to have zoom fatigue because you can shorten them down. You can keep them tight. Um, The last thing, I apologize for the long answer, but the other thing that we do do, we do ask that people be on video as much as possible. Um, And this is, Team by team, a little bit different. But we ask them to be on Zoom as much as possible because we do want to see their faces. We do think it's important to see each other smile. That is the way we connect. It is the way we feel good and, and, and kind of, you know, eliminate loneliness. However, managers or, or anybody is fully welcome to call a telephone only one if they feel like their team has been on too many Zoom calls. And an employee at any time may enact what we call the no mascara day policy which is, even though it's mascara, I mean, that's typically a, a uh, more feminine term. It's not intended to be. It was just the funny term that somebody said one day and we, we ran with it. So it could be the no shave day. It could be any, whatever you want. Um, but it is a, hey, I'm just having a bad day. I don't want to be on camera, right? Maybe I didn't put my makeup on. Maybe I didn't do my hair. Maybe I have pink eye. Maybe my kids are running around in the background because they were sick today in their home. And like, I can't fix that. Right. So we give people permission on the days where they just can't be on camera to not be on camera. And we're not going to mm-hmm. give them any grief about that. As long as they're not abusing it, it's not all the time. Right. That is where I see zoom fatigue coming from is they don't have a way to say no on that day. They need to say, no, it's not all the other days of being on where they're perfectly happy to be on camera and talking and collaborating. It's the, it's that day that they couldn't be on that. They now had to like, just muscle through and they feel miserable
0: about it. So I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. That makes sense. And I think you've really hit the nail on the head with, you know, little changes that don't require cultural shifts that, that just offer that little bit of respect to people or that little bit of help when they need it. Right. If, you know, yeah, I think that's super useful. The other thing that I want to talk to you regarding, um, I suppose, a, a cultural shift more than anything else is the issue of trust. And I think that, you know, there are, we've written and talked a lot about the idea of presenteeism, people staying late in the office because they want to be seen to be working. And I think this does spill over into the remote workforce that people feel the need to be in their emails very early in the morning. So as their line manager can see. I, you can't see me, but I'm working, I'm doing it. Or they want to have more meetings so as they can be seen to be visible. And um, people are, as I said, working into the evening that it could be because they can't draw the line between their work-life balance, but equally it could be because they want to be seen to be working harder or as hard as they would be in the physical workplace. I'd like to just Talk about that for a little bit more because it would be useful if you could offer some advice on how we can really change that shift in mindset around trust that, you know, if people are going to be working remotely and that's... uh, an organisational decision that we can trust our staff to 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 work remotely and, and get the job done. Um, and equally, I suppose with issues like recruitment, so recruiting people virtually that you might never have met, there's obviously issues coming across there around trust. And, and, you know, there's a belief that if you can't physically meet people, you can't get the most out of them from, from an interview. So I'd be interested to find out what your thoughts there are and how we can really sort of change this culture to, to be one of, of trust.
1: Yeah. So how long do we have? I could probably talk about this for about four or five hours straight.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's such a huge issue though. And I think it's worth addressing.
1: So the simple answer is what you focus on grows. So if we focus on what seeing people or using these sort of, uh, I can see their emails, I can see them on meetings, like that's how we're going to judge you, right? That's how the organization is going to judge you. Uh, we, If the organization would have valued someone staying late and getting there early, right, as an indicator of their productivity, which I think is total crap. But if that's what they valued, right, that's what's going to grow. So an organization at its very heart has to be Willing to say that's not the right way. That's not how we really want to operate. And if they can so make that determination, then they can change and do it in a much healthier different way. Now, if they don't, it's really hard for anybody in between and you know uh, coming in new or a middle manager to make any important change that's going to really impact that, right? if If the senior leadership is saying, who's sending the most emails, who's the most visible, that's who I'm going to promote. That's who we're going to keep. That's who we're going to reward. It's pretty hard to undo that. Um, And that's coming from the top. So it's got, the top has to really figure that out, but there are things we can do. So one of the, I would say the biggest challenges we had in going remote was how do we measure people correctly? Because we used to measure people that way. Who came in early, who came in late, who brought everybody cookies, who, you know, was around. And we thought that that, you know, they were dedicated, they were working hard. Well, when we went remote, we figured out we were really, really wrong. And I'll give you a quick story. We had this woman who we thought was our best employee in our verifications department. We call employers, we call schools and verify people's resumes. And she always had top numbers uh, and good hours. And so, you know, we thought she was our, our number one. And we had this other woman who was barely hanging on. She was barely making our, our sort of minimums of what we thought someone should be doing for the amount of hours they were working. She never complained, but we were thinking, man, she's just not getting much work done, you know, and and we really like her and everything, but you know, we're just not sure. Um, and so we, when we went remote, we found out, that our best employee was our worst and our worst was our best. So what happened was we were misjudging this other person based on her showing up early and leaving late and being around in meetings and she just made her presence known. She sort of convinced everyone that she was this you know, great employee and bringing people baked goods and all this stuff. She was a very nice woman, but she was also taking the easiest work out of the basket. Consistently taking the easiest jobs for herself, and no one ever complained. And that woman who we thought was our worst employee was actually our best because she was taking the hardest work, never complaining. She was taking the most difficult uh, files to get to complete and, and working on them. So when we went remote, we had to democratize that work. We had to assign it randomly, assign it in a very... You know, democratic way, it wasn't this sort of honor system or seniority and all this other stuff that was going on we didn't really even know about um, back in the cubicle farm. And when we started doing that it totally changed how we measured people so if your organization can shift and how it measures people. Be very clear about what success is. Be very clear about measurement. I talk on the book about KPIs and goals. This is often one of the hardest things organizations have to do when they're remote is to say, what does good really look like? What does success really look like? Because you will find there's so many little uh, bad levers in there that are telling you that someone's doing a good job that aren't really helpful, that are based on them being around, being nice, being present in a meeting, you know, go, go, bringing somebody lunch, whatever, doing these little things that are more politics than productivity that go away when you're remote. So if you can focus on those things, you'll notice your people will stop doing those other activities because it's not going to get them anything. If you're going to say, We talked about you getting A, B, and C done this quarter. Has A, B, and C been done? Oh, it has? Cool. I don't care if you played golf half the time. I don't care if you sat on your couch and watched soap operas while you did it. If you got these three things done that you and I agree were super important for you to get done, I don't care how you did it, where you did it, why you did it, how you did it. I just care that it got done. Right. And, and so I'm focusing on the, on the outcomes. I'm going to focus on what you, what you did. And if you couldn't get it done, then we can talk about why, then we can dissect where you could do better. Right. Then we can kind of get into the weeds. Um, But I've had people ask me over and over and over again, how do you know your people are working? And I go, I don't, and I don't care. All I care about is they got the things done that we all agree they were going to get done. And I've never once had an employee not be working and you know take us for a ride right and be you know essentially being paid to watch soap operas i've never had that happen because we don't focus on that we focus on the outcomes and everyone else is fo- focused on the outcomes and the kpis and the goals and it's, it's just very simple to see if people are on track or not because that's what our focus is we're focused on on getting better, not on how they're doing or what, how they're spending this five minutes of their time or this two minutes of their time. Um, and, and and really trying to make it happen in a, in a concise way.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that there's, I think there's very much a school of thought around, well, you know, it doesn't matter whether somebody's in-house or working remotely. If, if we can't trust them to get the job done, we shouldn't have recruited them in the first place. And that's on (laughs) us, you know, and I think that's a great answer. Thank you for that got one last question it's a simple question it's a very complex answer i'm afraid <laughs> i've seen a lot of um polls and surveys on on linkedin and elsewhere where people are sort of being asked about you know whether they would like to work remotely, whether they would like to return to the office, and whether they would like a, a hybrid um, arrangement. I suppose over the next few months, and there is a spectrum of different answers coming across. And I think it's it, it is clear that some people, most people, I think it's fair to say, love working remotely and they like that flexibility and all the benefits we've discussed over the past half hour. But there are people that that are sort of saying, "Well, it's not really working for me." If our workplace makes a decision to go fully remote. What would your advice be to that organization to, to make that, I suppose, an in inverted commas, work for everyone? How can we get the best situation for as many people as possible?
1: Well, it can't work for everybody. So you have to get out of your mind that we're going to somehow magically make it work for every single person. Um, some people will do really well in one environment and will not in another. So I think you're right in that. Most people have said they either want fully remote or they want flexible work. Right? They want the flexibility to work remote some of the time. So that's a vast majority of the employees. There are certainly people saying this doesn't work for me and I I can't do this because a their jobs really do entail them needing to be around other people. Right? If you're inventing something, you're working on something with somebody. If you work in a warehouse, if you were stocking shell, I mean, there are, if you work in a, a winery or you're you know you have to be there to manage the grapes, right? You can't work remotely uh, in a vineyard. Uh, There are jobs that just inherently require you to be together or to be at a specific location to get the work done. So if we eliminate those people and then we say, okay, who's left that's struggling? We have to go back and say, well, do they have what they need to be successful from a technology standpoint, from a support standpoint? Um, Have we done everything we can you will find there are some people, we learn this the hard way. I mean, like I mentioned that story a minute ago about that person who was taking the easiest work. I mean, they turned out to be not a good employee. They turned out to be manipulating and rigging the system for themselves, right? And so would you say I should keep, I should try to make remote work work for that person? Well, for five years, she was dishonestly taking the easiest work. So I said, no, I'm getting rid of her. <laughs> you know, she, it was no place for her in our organization anymore. That was not uh good behavior or, or the kind of behavior we would have expected out of somebody. So you have to be willing to let some people go. You have to be willing to admit that some people won't be able to change or adapt They're too rigid. They're too stuck in their ways. Um, if anyone remembers the flip phone, which was the big thing before we had iPhones. Uh, I know people that like, The only reason they got rid of their flip phone is because it finally broke, right? They were not going to change. They were not going to ever give up that flip phone if they could handle it. And there are people like that in your organization today that they want it the old way, the archaic way. They They don't care that there's this new device that has like a calculator, a camera, a video camera. I mean, it does everything. No, no. I want my archaic old thing. Give me that. If that works in your organization, great, but for us, it didn't, right? We're innovative. We want to do new things. Anyone like that in organization had to go. Um, And when we made that very clear, people either changed or they left or, or they got fired. And that was a very, very small, small number as we were transitioning. But it's important for organizations not to think about how do we make this work for every person? It's how do we make this work? for our best people? Mm -hmm. How do we make this work for those that we know are going to be a part of our future? And if you've got Jane in the back, who says no to everything and is always a roadblock, it's always causing, you know, someone you have to constantly convince and and cajole and, and bribe and, you know, to get them to do something new. I don't think you want them in your organization anymore. So we have to be very careful about how we sort of think about the future of work. It doesn't not everyone what is that, what is that saying? Not the people on your on the bus right now might not be the people on the bus at the next stop. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that's a really important uh factor for people. Uh you know, I, I had to learn that lesson the hard way that sometimes the people that got me there weren't the people who were going to get me to the to the next place. Um organizations evolve and who Who's sitting in those different seats sometimes has to change based on, you know, what you're going to do with your organization. Well, Chris,
0: thanks very much for this. It's certainly a fascinating topic and I could, I could absolutely talk to you about it all afternoon, but I'm afraid that is all we've got time for today. So thank you so much for taking the time to to share your insight and your advice with us today and all the best with the book. Thank you again.
1: Thank you.
0: Well, thanks once again to Chris for taking the time to speak to me today. As I mentioned, his new book, Remote Work, redesign processes, practices and strategies to engage a remote workforce is available from all good book retailers. And if you are interested to find out more around remote, flexible or hybrid working, there's a wealth of articles and thought leadership on the Ambition website. So if you go to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash Ambition and search remote or hybrid working or new normal, you'll find it all there.